Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Song of Solomon is where we're at. Chapter 3 is where we'll be tonight, 3 and 4. Here we go. (laughs) Lord, thank you and praise you for the day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for love, love that comes in in many different um, words in the original language. We have the brotherly love. We have the agape love, the sacrificial love like you gave us, Jesus. We have even eros, Lord, and a, a love that is meant to be between husband and wife. And we thank you that we can look at these things and see what the biblical example is of them, Lord. And I pray God, just that you would be in my words and that you would uh, guide me through this time, Lord. I pray, Father, that um, all of our hearts would be stirred unto you, uh, for we love you, Lord. And uh, we, uh, we do declare that you are worthy of all of our praise. And so we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We said last week as we started the book of Song, Song of Solomon that preachers over the years and teachers over the years have kind of fallen on one side or the other of the teaching of the Song of Solomon. They either completely stay away from what it says in in the plain context of just reading it as a a story or a song between a lover and his bride and and take it to the um, allegorical side of the relationship between Christ and the church. And and that's a beautiful picture, and I don't want to minimize that in any way, shape, or form. To look at the Song of Solomon and consider the relationship between the Jesus, the lover of our souls, and us, the, his bride, is a, is a glorious picture. But very often they would just take that side of it and not consider the practicality of the fact that God has ordained a specific way for marriage and a good a marriage that would be a good thing. And so uh, we, I want to try to walk the tightrope uh, we get, we see the in the modern movement everybody that wants to teach the Song of Solomon wants to just teach about sex, and and that's one way to look at it as well. And I kind of want to walk that tightrope to say no, I want to I want to try to pull in both. As we look at the text tonight, that's a challenge. It's it, it's it's uh, because it is deeply intimate. Uh, the the story gets intense. This is the 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 consummation of the marriage. And it's, it's intense on the physical level. And so to consider how Christ loves us through this is a, a more challenging thing. I'll try to do that a little bit, but tonight we'll probably come off as more on the side of the practical, what it is to be a husband and a wife. And so I think we can learn from that as well. So if you'll remember our characters from last week, this is a song. We have the Shulamite. Her name is Terza, and she is the bride. Um, she is the one that Solomon has married in this song. Again, we don't even know if this is something that actually happened or if this is a, a song that he made up to demonstrate a point. But uh, um, she's called the Shulamite, and, and we see her. Uh, we see Solomon, or the beloved, is what she calls him, um, and he's referred to as the beloved. And then we see this chorus of women that pop in every now and again and it's almost like voyeuristic they're or they're just like we want to see this and we want and it's not voyeuristic it's more like we want to celebrate love and so um so that's our main characters we're actually um going to hear a little bit from 
uh, I believe God himself in the song a, a little bit. We, um, we'll reference it tonight. So let's pick it up. Can you tell I'm nervous? <laughs> this is hard to talk about with my daughter sitting right there and Amy sitting right there and Natalie. And these are girls that I've watched grow up, you know? It's just like, Lord, help me. So Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 1. The Shulamite. So this is the, the woman speaking, the bride speaking. says, By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one that I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. We've heard that verse a couple times already, that phrasing a couple times already. Uh, A charge to the daughters of Jerusalem to remain pure until they are married. Don't awaken love, don't give away your heart until the the proper time. What we see in the beginning of this chapter... um, uh, a, a scenario, we don't know if this is a dream that she's had or if this is something that she walked through. She woke up in the middle of the night and she found that Solomon had gone elsewhere or he wasn't, and so she seeks him out. She looks to find him, has trouble finding him, eventually does find him, and then would not let him go. We said last week, as we learn from Ephesians chapter 5, as we dig into it a little bit, that one of the greatest needs of any woman is this uh, a feeling or a sense of security. So guys, husbands, one of the greatest things that we can provide for our spouse is that sense of security. It's a, a peace of mind, a, a stillness of the heart. They, the, the ladies and, and women find great uh, um, peace in that. And so we see the Shulamite actually here anxious Why? Because her love is missing, and because of the absence of her love, and that leaves her insecure without that security, and so she chases after him. It's a husband's responsibility to create in his marriage a place of safe haven for his bride. I also think it speaks about her, I like that it speaks of her relentless pursuit um, of her husband until he's found. She, she doesn't give up. She doesn't just go back to bed. She doesn't just say, oh, he'll be here eventually. She wants to pursue that security, and she does. And then when, she's, when, when, when he is found, she's intentional about keeping him engaged. She's like, once I, once I got him, I never, I'm not letting him go. You know, and that's a, that's a beautiful picture that uh, he's, he's my man. I'm not letting him go, right? That's what she says in verse 4. I held him and would not let him go. It's this sign of, almost of desperation, of, of, of uh, anxiety removed. This is kind of cool, and this is one of the ways we can see that, uh, or look at the relationship between Christ and the church. Spurgeon made a great point about this. Um, he held, or she held him and would not let him go. 
Um, he says, mark that according to the text, it is very apparent that Jesus will go away if he is not held. I held him and I would not let him go, as if he would have gone if he had, been, if he had not been firmly retained. When he met with Jacob that night at the uh, Jabbok, he said, let me go. He would not go without Jacob, Jacob's letting him, but he would have gone if Jacob had loosed his hold. The patriarch replied, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. This is one of Christ's ways and manners. It is one of the peculiarities of his character. When he walked to Emmaus with the two disciples, he made as if he would have gone on further. They might have known it was none other than the angel of the covenant by this very habit. He would have gone on further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for the day is far spent. If you are willing to lose Christ's company, he is never intrusive. He will go away from you and leave you till you know his value and begin to pine for him. I will go, says he, and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. He will go unless you hold him. Interesting view on the character of Christ. And we, we, the way we would say that today, and we've said this before, is that Christ is a gentleman. He's not going to stay where he's not welcome. And, and so we, uh, it's encouraging that we would um, continue to seek him. And like the Shulamite woman would not let her beloved go, we too, with Jesus himself, should do the same. So now it gets intense. We're, we're looking now at the wedding and the wedding night, and we need to understand the book is a poetic book, and so it's not chronological. It kind of bounces all over the place. I thought they were already married. Now they're getting married? Well, it's because it's not chronological. It's just songs very rarely are. But uh, all right, now, so now the rest of the chapter is kind of a picture of the, the actual wedding ceremony. It says in verse 6, and this is the Shulamite speaking. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch with sixty valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a something, palanquin. He made it pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughter of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of gladness of his heart. And so what she's describing here is the is the entourage. It's the, the wedding scene, how the, in, in, in Jewish custom, it would be that the bride, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week, the husband, once they were betrothed to be married, the husband would begin to build a house uh, to provide for his wife. And then when uh, they wouldn't set a date for the wedding, they would wait until the house was completed. And then when the house was completed, they would plan the wedding feast and then Part of the, the ceremony would be that the husband would go get the bride from her mother's house and bring her from her mother's house to the new house, and they would consummate the marriage there. 
And so that's this picture. Is, is She says, what's this I behold? What do I see? Solomon's couch is coming. She, he's, he's sending for her. He's sending to take her from her mother's house and bring her to his house. This, and it's this elaborate thing with 60 men around it. The, they, they all wear their swords, these valiant men. And uh, she's going to be well protected in that because of fear in the night is what she said. And, and because she can see there are valiant men around her to protect her, there's, there's that anxiety being relieved. There's that sense of security that she's looking for. And so he, uh, and it talks about the wedding processional. It says in John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus says himself, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And that is when we will enter into his presence for all eternity, we'll sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a beautiful picture. He says, I, if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come again. I will come and get you. And that's the picture we see Solomon going to get his bride. That was the easy part. <laughs> now it gets steamy. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4 are what's known as a wasp. W-A-S-F. W-A-S-F. A wasp. And that is a poem of praise in which one lover describes the beauty of the other, beginning with the head and moving down the body. That's what we see. We see actually several examples in the book of Song of Solomon uh, uh, describing uh, the, what they are seeing. And this is now moving from the wedding processional to the wedding night, to the point where they would consummate the marriage. This is now Solomon speaking. It's a, if you've got the New King James, it would probably say at the beginning of verse 1, the beloved, that's Solomon. This is Solomon now describing his beautiful bride. And remember, before we get into it, remember the self-image that she had at the beginning of chapter 1? Don't look at me. Um, I, uh, you know, I, because of the, my labor, because of the, the way my brothers have treated me, she had no self-esteem. And we saw throughout the chapters, chapters 1 and 2, last week that, that Solomon diligently worked hard to raise her self-esteem, to lavish love upon her, and to put some confidence in her. And, and he's going to continue to do that. He says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. And we said fair here does not mean average. Behold, you're all right. <laughs> that probably wouldn't go well on the wedding night. Yeah, I've seen better. You know, that, that just wouldn't be right. And so that's not what he's saying here. Behold, you are fair as in lovely, as in beautiful. I, I, I'm glad to behold you now. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from the Mount of Gilead. Now, we, we take from Solomon's example, but we don't use the same words that he said. <laughs> it does not translate well, necessarily. What we need to understand in, this, in these chapters and in this wasp is what a simile is, right? A simile is a comparison. Uh, it's a, he says, your hair is like... There's actually, if you Google... Uh, never mind. Uh, yeah, if you want to. 
There's literal drawings of what he describes here. For if you go Google, you know, Song of Solomon and look at, um, you know, images, and they'll pull up. It'll pull up literal drawings, and so there's this really nasty-looking witch-type girl with, you know, goats in her hair, and you know, yeah, it's it's so a neck like you know a tower, and so so it's not literal. Please understand simile. And, and, and learn from Solomon what he's saying. First of all, you're do, you're, you're, you have dove's eyes, and that was, that's a beautiful picture. They're, they're clear. They're, they're um, like we said last week, single-focused. They focus on one thing. And it's, she, he even says, behind your veil, indicating that this was a special ceremony. This was a special thing. The women of that day did not wear veils every day. They would wear them at their wedding. They would wear them at special occasions. And so this... It sounds like it is the night of the wedding. Your dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. What is he saying? Well, Mount Gilead goats would have been black. All the, all the goats that grazed on Mount Gilead were black. And so he's speaking of the color of her hair. And as they descended, as the goats would descend the mount, the way the sun hit the side of the mountain, the goat's hair would shimmer. And it would look, you would see the, high, the natural highlights. And so he's actually describing her hair as very, very lovely, uh, a dark color with natural highlights. Uh, it, was, it was beautiful to behold. Verse 2, <laughs> your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from washing. <laughs> Every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. <laughs> so what he's saying is, girl, you ain't got summer teeth. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? Some are there and some ain't. <laughs> Everyone has its twin. That means that you've got a full set of teeth, which... Now think about the consider the time. They didn't have hygiene. They didn't have oral hygiene in those days. So you don't go to the Walgreens and get yourself a toothbrush, right? So they didn't have necessarily ways to clean their teeth. They didn't have a dentist. There weren't, you know, routine root canals and what have you. So to reach the age of marrying and to have a full set of teeth probably was an un- uh, uncommon thing. And the fact that they're white, as in the flock, that's a, g- a good thing. She... She cared for her teeth, and Solomon recognizes it. Moving from the head down, that's what he's doing. None is barren among them, none are missing. Don't go home to your wife and say, Honey, your old teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. <laughs> Verse 3. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. So we said last week, and I'll say again, uh, to kiss somebody, a, a kiss is an act of intimacy. Solomon looks at his bride's lips and sees that it's like a strand of scarlet. Sounds like she had um, not voluptuous lips, but probably a thin lip, and, and that appealed to him. And he, uh, he likes the color, be it through cosmetic or natural color of scarlet. Her, her mouth is lovely. He likes the shape. He wants to kiss his bride. That's a good thing. And, the, and then the temples behind the veil are like a piece of pomegranate. 
I think would be like if you were to slice a piece of pomegranate, it's like red around the outside and then it's got a bunch of big yellow seeds, which sounds like acne, you know? (laughs) So I don't think that's probably what he's describing. But when he speaks of her temples, it would be more than just the area we think of the temple, but it would be the side of the face. And when a when a, a pomegranate is ripe to eat, when it's of the right ripeness proper, and you slice it, it is a very lush red color. So she's got beautiful cheeks. She has uh, um, probably about the color my cheeks are turning now. And so <laughs> I wore the red shirt to hopefully you wouldn't worry, wouldn't notice my embarrassment, because we are moving down the body. Chances are Solomon was not just reciting this across the room. He wasn't, you know, she was over there on the couch and he was up against the wall on the others. This was, remember, we saw an, an intimate embrace in chapter 2. His right hand behind my head, his left hand around me, uh, mean, or under my head, meaning they were laying down. And so this is a, something that he would be whispering to her, an intimate setting. Oh boy. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which thing hang a thousand bucklers. Bucklers are shields, a shield of mighty men. <laughs> so she's got beautiful teeth, beautiful lips, rosy cheeks, and a neck like a bodybuilder. <laughs> Evidently. So I don't, from working in the fields, I don't know if that... No, that's probably not what he's saying, is it? Tower of David. The Tower of David was a place of safety and refuge. It was something that they could look upon and know that um, it was a, a safe place. And, they, and they, the, the Tower of David did have the, the, the bucklers. It was the place they kept the shields of the mighty men. And so for him to say that, what he means is to be neck to neck with my wife, to be this close and this intimate with his bride, evoked these feelings of safety and refuge. I, I like being in your arms. I like being with you. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. We'll just skip that. And <laughs> I'm trying to make light of it. No. Um, Breasts are the greatest symbol of femininity. And Solomon here is praising his bride's womanness. He's, he's celebrating her femininity. And, and, that's, uh, and to say, uh, you could go deeper into what he's saying by two fawns and twins of a gazelle, and, or two rows, I think it says in the King James, is to describe what they look like and... and I won't do that. And it may seem surprising that the Bible would talk like this. This is the Word of God. I mean, I, I would imagine if you hadn't read this before, you'd be like, this is some, some trashy romance novel or something. That you, you know? But this is, this is the Bible, that the Bible would speak about breasts. And, you know, well, that's because sexuality is a gift from God. It is something that God has uniquely designed that for the intimate relationship of a husband and a wife. It's, to be, it's given by God for married couples, and it's meant to be enjoyed. We said last week that the part of the female anatomy is just purely for pleasure. So often, 
People are so sexually broken, especially in the day and age we live in, because of premarital sex or abuse or um, a, a rape situation or, or uh, years of exposure to pornography, which would twist what, what your understanding of sexuality is. So often we are so sexually broken that we cannot, uh, that it can't be seen in, a, in, a, in this way. It can't be seen in a holy way, that, that sex is actually a holy act. And so I think it's actually good. God actually gives us sex to be enjoyed as an act of worship. That this, this is one of the ways that a, a husband and a wife can worship God together. It honors Him. It pleases God that when it's done properly. If you were to look at chapter 5, verse 1, if you've got an actual Bible in your hands instead of on your phone, to flip to chapter 5 real quickly, it says in verse 1, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. And if you read it in the King James, I think it says that the... um, uh, the beloved is saying this, that, that Solomon is saying this to his friends. But other translations would say, no, this is actually God stepping into the story, and this is God speaking to the husband and wife. I like that understanding of it. Like we said, who says what, where is not, in, where, the way they define it in the New King James isn't necessarily inspired of God. These are just their suggestions. So I think in that little section in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, I think it's actually God speaking to the husband and wife where he says, eat, O friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. I created this for you to be enjoyed by you that you can worship me in it and it honors me. And so I encourage you to to take hold of that and to enjoy it. And so as he, it's interesting that he, as he goes from the head um, down her body, he describes seven different things. Um, the uh, eyes, the hair, uh, the teeth, um, the lips, the mouth, the temples, uh, or sorry, the mouth and the lips would be one, the temples, the neck, and the breasts. So the sign of seven, a uh, picture of seven is the picture of completion in the Bible. And so he, he, he draws attention to seven different things here. And then he says in verse six, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. The beautiful picture. It's Solomon's desire to carry their passion all night long. He says, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And we'll talk more about what that could potentially mean as he, uh, he, he'll do another uh, wasp later in the, in the book, and we'll talk about those things. But um, as married people, we need to recognize that a great gift of intimacy that we can give to our spouse is our body. That we can, a huge um, intimate gift that we give one another is our body. In fact, it's commanded by Paul, but so few of us really do it. I mean, we, we might give ourselves, we might lend ourselves to our spouse now and again. We might 
but nobody or not many actually surrender ourselves. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so my encouragement for those of you who are married and hearing this, perhaps even make a ceremony of it, but to say, I've, I've, I've been stingy, I've been negligent, I've been sinful in the fact that I'm not surrendered to you. And that's, this is not just talking on the sexual level. It is speaking on that as well, but not just, in, not just in sex, but in all of our lives that we would be surrendered to one another. Totally and completely giving our bodies over to, to place somebody else's needs in front of our own. That's our, that's our definition of love. And one of the ways we can do that is to surrender our body as Christ surrendered His on the cross for the purpose or the benefit of those whom He loved. He says in verse 7, You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. I love that. So he, he describes from the head down, he, and, and they embrace in this, and, and he enjoys that. He, he um, says, uh, he finishes the way that he began. You are all fair, my love. That's the way he began. And then he adds this caveat, and there is no spot. I've inspected. I've looked at you. I've, I've, I've enjoyed you with my eyes, and I find no spot on you. I find no wrinkle. I find no blemish. Mm. That's familiar language, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, listen, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Solomon looks upon his spouse who, at least in, through the eyes of his love, he finds absolutely perfect. He finds him without spot, washed and purified. And as Christ looks upon us through the love that he had for us, the sacrifice that he made on the cross, we too, in his eyes, are found without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. What a glorious thought that he washes us by himself, by the sacrifice that he made. He says in verse 8, Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look atop, look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sanir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. And so it's, it's like, wait a minute, we were just in the inner chamber. We were just in this intimate scene. And we're just consummating the marriage. And all of a sudden he's saying, come with me from, to, or from Lebanon. What, what, what happened? Why? Why the sudden change? But I don't, I don't think this was a change. I think this would have been something that he could have said to her, in that, especially in that first night of intimacy as they consummated their marriage. Because she was from Lebanon. That was her homeland. So he's inviting her 
And he's saying, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. My spouse. Yeah, this is the invitation he's making to leave and cleave. It's time to leave your family and join me, to be, be cleaved to me. And that's consummated in making love. And so uh, it's very possible that he said this in the midst of that passionate moment. Hey, it's, this is, we're going to consummate our marriage. We're going to make this, uh, uh, you know, the, the word, um, the word sex when translated from the Greek has a connotation that it's the mingling of souls. That there is, there's more than just the physical act. And that's why it is um, so vital that we would save ourselves from marriage. Because each time we commit the act, it is a, it's more than just a physical act. It is a, a spiritual act as well. It is a mingling of souls. And so... Um, so I, I, it's Solomon's invitation to say, okay, you, you've, you've kept yourself chaste, you've kept yourself pure. We see him celebrate that in the early chapters. And now it's time to leave your father and mother just the way it was designed from the beginning of creation. It's time to leave them and to join me. So come from Lebanon and come, and, and, and come to me and, and, and be with me. And then he says, you've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. And that's, that's a, a, a term of affection. Don't hear that as in um, uh, an incest situation or anything like that. This is a, uh, he's saying, almost saying that, that spouse is not a deep enough word. There's a, a, a spiritual side to it. And, and when you marry a, a fellow person who walks with Christ, you kind of get that. She's not only my bride, she's also my sister in the fact that she's a sister in Christ. But you've ravished my heart. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. And so he's, he's expressing his satisfaction, his joy, his peace, his excitement, his happiness that comes from intimacy. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. He's intoxicated even by her smell. It says there uh, in the middle of the verse, how much better is better than wine is your love. And the word, the Hebrew word there is the word dod for love, D-O-D, and that's regarding her, her sexual ability. This is regarding her, uh, her sexual love that he's speaking to. It's better, and so there's an intoxication in a good way. Your, uh, your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Is it warm in here? <laughs> this is intense. Your lips drip with honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. We thought the French invented that type of kissing. No, Solomon was well aware. And he's aware of her uh, scent as well. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. The spring shut up, a fountain sealed. He's speaking of her purity here, that she was... Uh, a virgin when coming to the, the wedding 
bed, and so uh, a garden enclosed, meaning it had been sealed. We understand from those days that gardens were a rare thing, and so they were well protected. You didn't didn't have a garden in in your backyard that anybody could partake of. They would actually wall off gardens and lock them. We saw that in Jesus' day in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we studied through it in the book of John, we learned that that you know it would have been um, somebody who owned the the place of the pressing, uh, the the olive press, and and they would have had to loan Jesus and his disciple their keys. It would have been a locked area. The gardens weren't just out in the open; they were privatized, and so we see that. You know, gardens were locked on only for the use of those who own the garden in the same way he's saying of her that I appreciate your purity that you have saved yourself for me. 13, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well, living, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. He's describing their, their love as this beautiful and glorious and passionate place. The, uh, a paradise, a garden paradise is what, they're, what he's describing here. And we, uh, you, have you guys heard of En Gedi? It's this beautiful place in the middle of the desert that just suddenly pops up an oasis, this glorious thing. And that's kind of what he's describing here is this, uh, that in the midst of the mundane and ordinary, this, this time he's just enjoying it deeply. Then the woman speaks, the bride speaks, in verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And that's pretty intense. And I'm not going to go into great detail. You can study that on your own with your spouse. But what we can glean from this is her love for him is not passive. This is her expressing her love, awake, O north wind. He's, she's inviting him. It's a, she's engaged. She's surrendered to him. This is an act of respect for her husband. That he, she would be surrendered unto him. And that meets one of our, his greatest needs. We said a couple times now that one of the greatest needs of a woman is the sense of security. And one of the greatest things we can provide as a husband for our wives is that peace and that sense of security. Well, in Ephesians 5 also, it would say to the wives that one of the greatest needs that can be met by you as a wife is that um, you would give your spouse respect. That as men, one of the greatest things that we have that we need is a sense of respect, that we would have somebody who would be in our corner no matter what, that somebody would be building us up and, 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 and proud of us. We need that. And so that's what she's doing in verse 16. Her love's not passive. She's surrendered. And he's, she's meeting one of his greatest needs in giving him respect by being submitted to him. As we talk about the practical side of the Song of Solomon, and that's where we'll end for tonight, as we talk about the practical side of Song of Solomon, I think 
And I get this term from the book Intimacy Ignited. If you haven't read it yet, it's an eight-week study course that you can do with your spouse on the Song of Solomon. It's it's very intimate. It's very intense. But um, um, one of the terms that they use at the end of each chapter, it will say, if if you want to... um, engage your husband or engage your wife, uh, you, want, you want to be what's known as a servant lover. And the idea is that I'm going to place my spouse's needs in front of my own. That's the idea of being a servant. I take care of her before I take care of myself. I, I make sure that she, her needs are met in our marriage. And so close our chapters tonight with these three thoughts that we can glean from the chapters. And that would be servant lovers do these things. Servant lovers make their marriage a safe place by meeting each other's deep need for love and respect. Sorry, four things. So make marriage a safe place by meeting each other's need, deep need for love and respect. A servant lover would honor their wedding vows daily. Your wedding vows aren't just something you said at the beginning of your marriage. They're something to be lived out day after day after day, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Servant lovers are romantic in and out of bed. And servant lovers give the gift of their body to their mate. So on the physical or on the you know the physical level we can take those things and and hopefully if you're if you're not married at this point that um you know should the Lord bless you with a spouse so that you can be equipped um, to be all that you need to be for them. But then we look at the spiritual side as well in our relationship with Christ. And as I said, sometimes it's a little bit harder to see as we read through the Song of Solomon, the, the, the direct parallel to Christ and His church. But know that in Christ we have a safe place because our needs have been met in Him. He takes care of us all. And as... He has loved us, then we return that love by respecting Him. We, he honors His wedding vow daily in that He has died on our behalf, that He will love us unconditionally for all of eternity. And that there is no greater intimacy that can be found than our relationship with Him. So I, I encouraged you as we began this book that this would be one that you would chew on for a long time, that you would take this privately into your own study, consider, because the, the ground in this book is rich. There's a lot to be gleaned from it uh, in both aspects. And so I would just encourage you as you read, uh, continue to read, um, so go to your prayer closet and say, Lord, I want to love you in a deeper way. Show me how I can love you more. As we said in James, draw near to me, God says, and I will draw near to you. And so we want to do that. But then also in the practical, that we would be surrendered to one another. Uh, romantic, intimate, and offering a place of love and respect in our houses. Amen? All right, let's stand, let's close in prayer. Like I said to start, you know, 
our the nation we live in, the society, no, not just the nation, the world we live in, has hijacked sexuality. And so even though it makes me uncomfortable to teach this, I think it right because we need to see, we need to see the biblical view of what God has given us. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this picture, and thank you for the Song of Solomon, Lord. And for those of us that are married, I pray that all of us would take a deeper or a greater or a closer step in intimacy to our spouses. Lord, that we wouldn't forsake one another um, in the midst of busyness and busy seasons, especially for those of us raising kids. There, there are so many things that vie for our time, Lord. I pray that we would carve out a season, a time, uh, an opportunity for intimacy on a regular basis, Lord, that we would be intentional about being servant lovers to one another. And for all of us, Lord, who know you, Lord, that's our heart is we want to be a greater servant lover to you. We want to honor and glorify you. We want to respect you and obey that all, all that you have commanded us, Lord. We want to worship and adore you. We want to glorify your name. So just help us to see this, how deeply you love us so much so that you gave your life. What a glorious thought. Thank you. I pray from our love for you would stem a love that we would have for this world, that they would grow a greater knowledge of you, Lord, a deeper intimacy and a right relationship with you. Father, there are so many that need to know your saving grace. We love you, Lord, as we'll close in singing. I pray, Father, that with our lives we would show it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.